Got a little bit of water here. I got a little bit of ginger tea. <clears throat> we're gonna, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be filled with the spirit is what we're gonna do. Um, so, not feeling well today, but that's besides the point. I'm excited about starting this new series. And this series is gonna be a little bit different one for us because um, Jess and I are privileged to be able to do some traveling in the next couple of weeks. And so um, for the next two weeks, we'll have some guest speakers coming from Sebring, and they're going to be sharing this, this series with you. But I wanted to take a few minutes to set it up for you, to spend our time this morning setting it up and talking about the first chapter. Um, and I'll, let me just pause and say thanks so much to Rachel, who helped me do the um, graphic on this one, which was a lot of fun. So I appreciate her work on that. <coughs> This, this series um, might be too clever for itself, but we'll, we'll get through it. Um, how many of you have heard the phrase entitlement? Not spelled that way, but you've heard the phrase entitlement. And how many of you, when you hear entitlement, like the second, the word that's connected to that is millennials? <laughs> I knew somebody was going to be honest. That's usually how I hear it. Um, and as somebody who is a millennial, like I'm not really sure how to take it. Uh, my suspicion is that, um, that there was a generation before us that looked at the generation after them and said, well, they're entitled. And my suspicion is that they looked at the generation before them and that it's gone on and on and on and we're just the next in line and I'm okay with that. Um, but when we talk about entitlement, what is it that we're talking about? When, when we think of that idea, what is, the, what is the attitude of somebody who is entitled? Deserve, yeah, I deserve something, what? Okay, so they, they think that they should get things that they haven't earned. Any other thoughts? It's a pretty good, pretty good summary. Um, I just wrote down, somebody owes me something. And whatever the somebody is, that might change. Whatever the something is, that might change. But the attitude of, of being entitled is somebody owes me something. And the good thing is, is that we're all Christians and we've never had this attitude in our own hearts that we don't ever have to think like, like maybe somebody owes something to me. Like we've got it this settled. So we're going to talk about some other people this morning and how they're entitled. Um, but the, the attitude is somebody owes me something. And in America, there's a lot of things that we are just blessed with, like things that we take for granted that, that even as we think through the different blessings that God has given us just by the nature of the time period that we've been born in and by the, the, all of the incredible things that God has done in this country, like there's just rights that we have that are guaranteed for us that are protected by documents and protected by court systems and protected by a, a system to protect our rights. And there are many in the world who, who don't have those protections. And so we start to think like these rights, which if we go by the Declaration of Independence, are inalienable and given to us by God and simply protected by the government. Like, we take them for granted. And, and we're, we're like, yeah, I deserve this. Like, this is my right. This is, this is a thing that I am going to do and I'm going to stand up in. And so the question that I want to ask is, what happens when our rights come into conflict with Jesus' mission in the world? It happens occasionally um, that people's rights come into conflict with each other. And so what do we do when our rights come into conflict with what Jesus wants to do? What happens when our rights become an idol that we would worship over God? So the series is entitlement. 
Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, we do thank you for all of the, the inherent value that you've given to us by making us in your image. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of being in a country that acknowledges that, at least um, in the founding documents. And Lord, we don't pretend to try to sort out all of the ways that, that, that things are in conflict in the world. But Lord, we come to you just grateful for what we enjoy. And Lord, we pray that you would be Lord of our lives, Lord over every aspect and every corner of us. And that, Lord, you would help us to see your wisdom and when to lay our rights down. God, would you speak clearly through your word this morning? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So this series is Entitlement, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you'd like to turn with your Bible, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're using a story Bible uh, that we've got here, um, there it's on page 792. <clears throat> but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And actually, as I'm looking at my notes, I'm going to turn there too. First Corinthians chapter 8, page 792. And I'm just going to read for you the first three verses to get the ball rolling here. First Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So, um, you might have noticed that we're starting in chapter 8. That means that there have been seven chapters worth of material that have gone on beforehand. And this letter is... Okay, sorry. Kid Nation's playing tag in the parking lot. I was not expecting that. I'm trying to figure out whose children those are out there. They're mine. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I'm sure Ryan's out there. I see him too. Okay. <sighs> 1 Corinthians chapter 8. <laughs> um, 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by a pastor to a church in a town called Corinth. And the pastor is Paul, and he wrote the letter to the church that he started, remember? He started this church, and the city of Corinth is kind of like a hotbed for everything sinful. It's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's Las Vegas. And so that's exactly the kind of place that Paul wanted to go and start a church. He goes and starts a church, and um, he gets a letter from them, and they're like, well, I know you taught us this stuff about Jesus, but I think we've, had, we've come to a better understanding. I think we get this better than you did, Paul, and we're just going to take care of things our own, our own way. And at the same time that he's getting this letter from them telling, them how, telling him how they have it all figured out and how everything's going to work out for them, he also gets rumors back about things that are going on in the church that are clearly showing that things are not going well. And so he writes this letter um, of 1 Corinthians in response to the letter that they wrote and also in response to the rumors. So this is a section that is a response to a question that seems like they posed because he says in verse 1 of chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols. He says, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And I think what he's doing here is he's taking a phrase from their letter and, and kind of using it against them. He's saying, we know that everybody has knowledge. I know that you guys are really, really smart. 
and you've got this figured out and you know the best way to do things and I'm just going to trust that you know that. But I want you to understand that the knowledge that you're saying, the way that you're describing this is prideful and you're building yourself up. He says, if you think you know it all, then you're the last person to realize you don't. <clears throat> he says, if anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So he's starting out, we're starting out this idea, this series of entitlement, looking at the idea of humility. This is, this is the, the place that we have to start from. And it's not the place that we are naturally born into. Um, children, I don't know if you've ever noticed, are predisposed to want to serve themselves and to not want to serve other people. They're predisposed to, like, you and I both need a uniform to get dressed this morning. We wear the same size shirt. There's only one clean one, and I'm going to take this for me. And I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to share. And I'm not going to be the one that wears a dirty shirt that day. When Paul starts to talk about this idea, he, he says, look, we got to start not with the attitude of entitlement. we got to start with an attitude of humility. If you think you already have it all figured out, you're never going to learn more. And so here's a simple question that I come up against over and over again in my own heart. Are we teachable, church? It's not that we can't know anything. It's not that we can't have true knowledge about certain things. And it's not that we can't have a system for understanding how the world works. But in the moments that, <clears throat> excuse me, in the moments that there's something that bumps up against your system of thought and understanding, do you reject it outright because it, it doesn't fit? Because you've already got everything figured out and it doesn't, that doesn't flow into how your brain works? Or it's just like, no, that has to be wrong because it's a different thought than I've ever thought before. Or you say, I've never thought that before. I've ne that thought has never occurred to me. Maybe I've missed something along the way. It's not that you don't have a strong belief system. It's not that you don't know what you believe and stand upon what you believe, but it's that when you come across something you don't know, like don't automatically assume that if you didn't know it before, it wasn't true. There's, there's so many times that I have come up and I'm like, this idea doesn't make any sense. I, I can actually tell you one that happened to me in the last couple of weeks. I've been reading a book and, he's, and the author is uh, Dallas Willard and he's saying that spiritual formation, the way that we learn actually starts in our thoughts and our thinking. And I thought, I don't think I like that. I don't think that that's true. I think spiritual formation starts in the spirit, and it's the spirit of God moving and things like that. And as I, I looked at his argument, I was like, I don't know. And I thought about it for a couple of weeks, and I'm kind of at the place now where I'm like, yeah, maybe it is. Because if I didn't have the thought, like the thought existed in my mind that Jesus could save me of my sin, then why would I ever choose to believe that? How could I ever choose to believe that? How can they believe unless they've heard, he says in Romans. And so I've come to a place where, while I disagreed at the beginning, I'm starting to see his point, and maybe I have something to learn. And it's not just about spiritual things. If we've done our job for any kind of length of time, we get a grasp on how it goes. Um, as somebody who just started a new job, like I'm the new guy on, on the side and trying to figure stuff out, and like I just don't know where things belong, and, and I know in a year or so, I'll have a handle on it, and I will just scoff at whatever new guys. Like, you don't know where this is. You can't find the drill bits. Like, really? 
It's, it's in the same place. It's been in the same place for a year. It's the attitude of like, you ought to know this because I know this. And if you have information that I didn't have before, like you must be wrong because I already have this sorted. Now, he's talking specifically about food offered to idols, which is not something that we think about too terribly much. Um, but we're going to read the next section to get a little bit of clarity about what he's talking about here. So would you continue to read with me in verse 4? Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat and no better off if we do. I'll pause there. So we don't actually carve out our idols so much and like bow down and worship them. We just kind of plug them in every night and, and carry them in our pockets all day. Just kidding, but not really. <laughs> um, the, the system of idol worship in, in their day was a little bit different. Um, where they would actually have an offering, they would have a sacrifice, they would give food to the God. The idea that we read in Matthew 25 where the God says to the person, like, you gave me food and you clothed me and you gave me water, like, for those people, they'd be like, well, yeah, we did that every day or we did that every week. That was part of our thing. For us, it doesn't make sense, but that was actually how it worked. The system of offerings made sense to them. And part of that is if you offer a certain part of an animal to the God and the rest of it is not worthy to the God, like not worthy to be offered, you've got a whole bunch of animal left over. And so these temples that were to these deities would often essentially become butcher shops because there's a bunch of extra to sell. And so there's this food that's coming out of a pagan temple. And now I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus that saved me but that's the cheapest meat in town. Like, I, I, I shop at Aldi because it's cheap. Like, I got I to gotta make the budget work. Like, how do I do this? Is it okay for me to eat this food that has, it feels like maybe it has spiritual contamination. Like, there's demonic stuff that happens in idol worship. You've been telling me all about that. Like, how do, what do I do with this? I got to eat. I got to live. But is this the right way to do it? So what does he say? He says, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed many little g-gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So essentially he says, we already know. For those of you guys, you smart Corinthians who have everything figured out, that you're telling me that, that, that you don't actually need my instruction, I get your logic. I get your argument. Your argument is, that's a piece of rock. I got nothing to be afraid of from a piece of rock. It doesn't matter what shape it's in. There is, there's nothing in it. There is only one God. That makes sense. 
Like, if there is only one true God, the creator God, who speaks and things happen, and then there's a rock that doesn't talk, that doesn't create, that doesn't destroy, I mean, it can cause damage in the right hands, but, like, what is it? It doesn't have any meaning. Um, I actually went through this a little bit. We took a trip to, uh, to India uh, when we were first married for um, my brother-in-law's wedding. And um, we brought home an idol. It was uh, a framed, and I, I love wood, and, and so this was a framed deity that was carved out in a bunch of different wood layered over. It's just it's beautiful. I love it. And I, I was like, can I bring this into my house? Like, this is an idol. Like, there's, people would worship this. People make offerings to this kind of, like, not, not like people. This isn't like a people group somewhere. Like, these were people I had met. These are people I had had conversations with. And they would revere this piece of wood as a deity. And they would give stuff to this piece of wood because that's how their belief system worked. Like, okay, they actually believe that this is a real thing. Like, what do I do with it? Because I know it's, it's a hunk of wood. Somebody carved it. It looks pretty, but it doesn't actually have any power. Like, what, what, what do I do with this? And, and Paul's making the same argument. He says, we get it. Like, I know that there is only one God and that these little gods that you used to worship actually don't have any power. And so, he, but then what's the point he makes in verse 7? However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with, with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. He says, look, I get that you guys are so smart, you've got your doctrine ironed out, you know that there is only one true God, but don't you understand that there's people in your church that don't get it yet? There's people who were worshiping false gods last month, and this month they're trying to figure it out if those idols are really real. I spent my whole life believing that there was a spirit within that rock that could cause my life to go miserable if I didn't give it the right food at the right time. Like, I've been afraid of this thing for a long time, and you're telling me that it's nothing. It's going to take me a while to follow you along to get there. So he says, you guys that have it sorted out, I get it. But don't you understand there's people who, when, when they eat food offered to idols, they believe that there's been a spiritual thing that's happened. And their conscience with God is violated. Say, so God, I don't think this is right, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that's not right. There's something about the way that the Spirit of God works within our conscience that we're accountable to individually. There are absolute moral truths that, that stand firm, but our conscience it puts us in a special relationship with God. And for, for us to make decisions that would lead other people to make decisions that violates their conscience is wrong of us. And he says, what is the point anyway? It doesn't matter. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do eat and no better off if we do. We're no worse off if we don't eat and no worse off if we do. He's like, it doesn't matter. If you get to eat the cheap, feet, the cheap meat, then so what? Like, it's all going the same way. It all goes in, goes out. And some of it better than others. It just depends on how you cook it. I'm experiencing a little bit of that this morning. But it's, it's, it doesn't make us any better with God. It's not a spiritual concern until you consider the other person. So, Church, the question becomes, who are we learning from? 
If we are teachable, we have to ask ourselves, who are we learning from? Are we learning from the scriptures and what God has told us is absolutely true? Are we learning from people who value that or are we learning from other sources that would lead us to violate our conscience? It's not a big deal. Christians make such a big fuss about that. It doesn't matter that much. Who are we learning from if we're teachable? So let's get to his final point in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So he gets, he gets to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue, if we're going to consider this in humility, is how do we take care of our brothers and sisters? If I know that the idol is a piece of rock and it doesn't have anything, and so I go and I have uh, eat this meat, and somebody who doesn't know, who thinks that this, uh, this idol has power, sees me eating that meat, and they go, well, the pastor's doing it. That member of Grace Church is doing it. Like, if, if Christians can do it, then, then maybe it's not so wrong. I don't feel like, <laughs> I'm not settled with it in my conscience, but I could do it. And you, you've introduced or you've become a forum for conflict between that person and God. And he says, that you, considering how other people are going to perceive what you do actually is important. Because if you lead somebody to do something that violates their own conscience, then you've misstepped. And I'm not quite sure, like, the how of how this works out. Like, I don't know if... if there's some, there's some sense where in Hebrews it talks about we entertain angels when we, when we help out poor people. Or, or like there's, there's this idea that you never know when you're interacting with a stranger, like whether that stranger is an actual like real-life human being or whether they're a spiritual being in some kind of spiritual test. Like that might be the case in sometimes. And sometimes it, it might not be. It might just be that we all are created in the image of God and that the way that we treat other people reflects our value of God when we see his image in other people. Like I don't know the how of how this works. But whether or not we choose to value other people is going to affect our relationship with God. And that's why we read in Matthew 25. God's, God looks at people and says, look at all the kind things you did for me. And they said, when did I do that for you? Like, I did that for Joe. I did that for Tony. I didn't do that for you. He says, no, you did. That's what I put you there for. It's what I wanted you to be doing. And what's interesting, we're going to see in chapter 10 when we get there, and Oren will share with you, is that he's actually modeling this for them. He actually has greater knowledge about the thing that they're struggling with that he hasn't confronted them on it yet. 
He's walking them along. He's meeting them where they are in order to take them to a new place of understanding. He's sidestepping, not sidestepping. He's not saying everything he wants to say yet because he needs to make this point first. Sometimes we have to tolerate things that we don't like in other people in order to be able to have the voice to speak into their lives. Sometimes we have to spend time with people who do things that are unpleasant to us in order to lead them to a place where they're not dependent on the unpleasantness. Now I can leave it in vague terms where I can say, sometimes if you're a not smoker, you have to go and spend time with people who smoke and cough and choke on their smoke in order to be able to lead them to a place where they're not dependent upon tobacco. You have to meet people where they are to take them where you want them to go. And that's what Jesus does for us. It's if somebody is captivated by the addiction, like somebody's got to go in and, and, and bring them like out. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how else to say it. Like life and following Jesus isn't easy. Like the example, think about this, the example that Jesus has set for us. Perfect. Ultimate creator of the universe. Speaks and things come into existence. Living a perfect existence in heaven. Confines himself to a mortal body and is born in a stable to a bunch of peasants. Like, if the grace of God would meet us there, then what could we endure to meet other people where they are? The strength and knowledge of having escaped addiction, the strength and knowledge of having understood sin and walked out of that path is not for us to feel good about how far we've come. God gives us strength to build others up. So the question becomes, who are we building up? If we have a good understanding, if we have a good grasp of the Bible, with whom are we sharing it? If we, if we, if we don't have it all figured out, but we do know this one thing, that Jesus Christ is the answer for solving the sin problems in my life, like we can lean on that. That is enough. We can share that. Like I didn't have any hope and I didn't know what was going on in my life, and I don't know how it's all going to work out yet because it's not easy, it's not ironed out, it's not smooth, but I'm trusting Jesus, and man, there's something in my spirit that's alive now. There's something that's growing in me, and I don't have all the answers, but I have this one. Because God gives us strength to build others up. So who are we building up? Are we teachable, church? Who are we learning from? And who are we building up? Because God gives us strength for building others up. Let's pray together.
Thanks again for listening. We hope you've been challenged, encouraged, and helped by God and His Word. If you want more information about Grace Church of Ocala or would like to get in contact with us, please visit our home on the internet, ocalagrace.org. And if we haven't met yet, we hope to talk with you soon.